Your gut reaction that my husband Patrick is my guest this week will be either that it's completely corny or that it sparked your curiosity. What I can tell you is that Patrick is someone whose upbringing and diverse life experiences never cease to fascinate me. A few highlights include he was born and brought up in Kenya. He learned to fly with the RAF. He worked for the Walt Disney Company for three years and he lives in Paris and the United States and of course now Liverpool, leading the way in the port industry, contributing to creating thousands of jobs in the city he now calls home. I can also tell you that this podcast wouldn't exist without his endless encouragement. So I think we're both nervously excited that Patrick has agreed to share his story. So let's talk on to Walk On and let's see where it leads. Patrick, can you believe it? Thank you. I shall share my story. <laughs> share well, your most story. of it probably. Most of it. So most people may assume that the reason you're in Liverpool is because you met and married me. Tell us about your Liverpool connection, me aside. You aside. It wasn't until until I'd moved up to Liverpool that I learned more about my dad's connection with Liverpool. Because my father um, in the in the fifth, 1950s worked for a shipping line and uh, in, in London called Elliman City Liners. And there's in fact a, a road called Elliman Road here in Liverpool. And as you know, I was born and brought up in Kenya, and that's because in the nineteen in the early nineteen sixties, my father, who was having a, a daily commute from Folkestone and Kent up to London, working for for Elements, um, in the early sixties, he was offered offered the opportunity to move out to Kenya, which. As a single man might sound really exciting, but he wasn't a single man. He was married to my mum. My eldest brother and my sister were already born. My mum was pregnant with my brother, and, and I was just, as they say, a twinkle in the eye. Um, but at that stage, my father, I think, was already going up to Liverpool because the company he was working for had ships plying their trades all over the world, and London and Liverpool were their main ports. He he has always talked very fondly of Liverpool, and so, so throughout my life, being connected with ships and my dad, I've always heard about Liverpool. It wasn't until 2005 that I visited for the first time. And then it was through my work in 2014 that brought me up to Liverpool. Um, and I was able to say to my dad, I'm working in the port of Liverpool. And that was, yeah, I know. I remember when I met your dad and um, obviously he was quite poorly at the time because he, he, he was... Was he 90? I think he would have been mm. 90 then. Um, whilst his memory may have been failing him, I don't think it was failing him that much um, because one of the things he said to me, looked me right in the eye, he said Water Street to me and he also mentioned the overhead railway. Mm. And I was really taken aback and really touched the fact that, you know, he connected me to famous landmarks in the city and um, I was really proud of that and it was a it was a really really nice moment I was very very lucky to have met him before he sadly passed away but what we decided to do in honour of the Liverpool connection was to have his memorial at St Nick's Church which is known as the Sailor's Church and I know your dad wasn't a sailor but he was he loved loved the water didn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely he, he, he loved the waterfront he loved ships he loved Liverpool and um if he had, if he had known, he would have been absolutely over the moon to think that he was having his memorial at, at St Nicholas's Church. So, um, and literally a stone's throw away from the offices that he would have visited, yeah. um, there was um, Thomas and um, James Harrison Lines, Harrison Lines, well, another well-known Liverpool shipping line. There was Hall Line and and Elliman themselves. So, um, St yeah. Nick's is, you know, is as you said, it's this, it's the Seamen's Church, and it's a stone throw from the old India buildings, Water Street, and so on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, delighted that we had that Liverpool connection. Everyone you meet when you tell them where you're from, I always watch now because there, there seems to be, it's always met with a bit of a curious fascination and perhaps some judgment and preconceived ideas. So tell us about what you were born in Mombasa and brought up there till you were 21. Well, well was, yes, you, was, you, you called it home till you were yes, 21. That's, that's, that's the so, way I, So tell yeah, us about your upbringing, Patrick. Definitely, definitely preconceived ideas. And I think in, in this day and age now with the advent of TV and the internet and websites and people can, can research much more easily. So I think there's not so much of a weird and wacky <laughs> ideas of what it's like to live in Africa as there, as there were. But mm. as, as a kid, when I first came to school in England, for example, they had absolutely no idea 
and, and there's no reason why they would as to what it's like. And they knew I used to go around in bare feet, which is true, flip-flops <laughs> and bare feet. You um, still do, whenever but, you but, get the chance. But they had ideas that we lived in mud huts, and um, <laughs> which, of course, a lot of people do, but we didn't, yeah. or that, that we had lions ro- roaming through the gardens, or that we lived in a jungle. And But those those were those were sort of almost kids' fantasies, and, mm. and, and they, had, they had absolutely no idea. The, tr- the truth is, I, ha- I had a wonderful, um, wonderful child- childhood out there. Um, the truth is that you know, we lived in a in a lovely house. Um, we had a lovely garden, as you can imagine, with the weather. You know, we spent a lot of life um, outside. My growing up in Mombasa, which is actually on the coast, so it's on the Indian Ocean. We were very, very close to the beach. Most of the sort of activities I got involved in as a kid were um, related to the sea. Um, so, and, and I was the youngest of four children. So um, we used to go swimming. Um, we used to go snorkeling. We used to mm. go walking on the beach. I suspect I could probably swim before I could run because I would spend so much time in swimming pools or in the sea. So it, it was an, an idyllic childhood. And then from my parents' perspective, it was quite normal in a way. You know, my father had had his, his shipping line job and he would, he would get up in the morning, get ready and, and have a commute to work like everybody else. My mum worked as well. Um, she had a job out there. From a um, from a sort of a, a family point of view, it, it was to that extent quite quite so normal. But the surroundings, of course, were absolutely fantastic. And at the weekends, my father used to take my brother and I down to the port to to look at ships. And um, quite often on Sundays, we if there was a ship in, we would be invited onto the ship for a Sunday lunch with the with the captain and so on. <laughs> and um, suddenly be presented with all these sort of English things. A really, really odd thing is that we used to drink soft drinks like Coca-Cola and Panta out of bottles in, in Kenya. And the idea of actually having a can and, <laughs> and pulling back on a ring pull yeah. was was just, as a, for a child, an amazing thing. It was so English and foreign and so on. <laughs> and we were always given lemonade or Coke or something in, yeah. in a little can um, on, on the ship. So you, know, it, you have memories and, and of all of those tiny little things and, and the different food we ate. And it, it was just different. My, my father would always look after us for or spend time with us um for for part of the weekend but he he loved ships and he and he he lived for his 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 ships and we were all brought up with i mean before i was born and in fact when i was a I think when I was very, very little, the families traveled backwards and forwards for holidays and things um between Kenya and the u k um on ships so it was um, I know because your mum um we found some during lockdown some diaries didn't we th- that's right fascinating so, but in fact both my both she was my learning parents, to type on that's one right, of on, them. A, on, a, on a new electronic typewriter because yeah. she was used to um she had she was always a great typist and she used to teach typing during their last few years so this was in the early 1980s to the mid 1980s so electronic typewriters were just coming out yeah and it was actually on their voyage when my father retired in 1987 moved back from Kenya back to the UK Mm -hmm. with my mum they actually came back on a ship and um, they were both great diary writers my my father used to write diaries of of what he actually did my mum's diaries were more lists of things to do and so on but on this voyage she wrote a detailed diary Mm -hmm. of that three-week voyage Um, and nice thing not just what they did but how they felt and you know what they were thinking and how things were going and yes you're right we, we found that didn't we I know you, you've talked a lot about your, your idyllic upbringing, but they were really brave to go out to Kenya. I mean, what, yeah, it was this in the mid sixties. Yeah, Again, they, they wouldn't have had a clue what they were going out to. Would no, they? absolutely not. This was in the early sixties, so in fact, Kenya had just become an independent country. So those those of the listeners who know about the the um, the Kenyan fight for independence knows that it's a, a very it was a very bloody fight. Yeah, um, we call the Mau Mau Rebellion. And lots and lots of people killed on both sides, um, but it was that time of where, where all sorts of of some British colonies were fighting for their independence, and and Kenya got its independence in um, in the early nineteen sixties. Mm. And my parents moved out there just shortly after independence. They were a normal two two children family. Although, as I said, my mum was pregnant with my brother, and suddenly to to decide yeah. to to sell their house and go out to in those days, I can say deep and darkest Africa, because yeah. very few people did, was immensely yeah, courageous. Yeah, I think I give you mum especially particular credit for that, because yeah, what a decision when yeah. she had two young kids and That's pregnant right. with a third. And my father yeah. went went ahead of, ahead of my mum, so he went out um, to, to Kenya. She I think had to sail across yeah, by three, herself. three months ahead, and she came, went across by herself, yeah. two kids in tow, 
one in her tummy yeah um and looking after herself and then i always remember you talk about your mum because um, we talk about you know obviously i grew up in Shoebrook, west derby liverpool you know completely different but we often talk about our mums don't we because they were of a similar age and we always say that they were quite similar and i love you know, your, your no. mum was a, what, I don't know, what a proper mum is. What you can say what a proper mum is, but she was very loving, wasn't she? She held your family together and you all adored her, didn't she, you? Yeah, she did. And, and, you know, it is amazing how Michelle has, over the years that we've known each other, when we've talked about our respective mums, how many think times... We've talked, you know, there'll be something on the telly and I'll say, oh, my mum used to really like that. Yeah. Say, well, my mum did. Or you'd say, oh, yeah. my mum used to love eating so-and-so. And I would say, oh, my <laughs> mum did too. I know, just lots, lots and lots of silly things that all mount up to um, to this idea that they probably would have really, really got on well yeah. um, if they had met each other. But no, you're right. She, she, my mum really kept the family together. You know, there, there were four of us by the end, four kids. Yeah. And um, like I say, my, my father was was loved his work. He was good at his work, but it, he lived for his work, mm. his ships. He, was, he had this just passion for ships. He was a while He was like a walking encyclopedia yeah. for, for ships. And so he was a, he was away and, and he used to go, he used to have business trips to Hong Kong, to Japan, to India, to Canada. And so sometimes left my mum for, for, for a few weeks. But yeah, she held it together, mm -hmm. you know, and she, but she worked, she looked after us. She had a passion for theatre. She became sort of a, a serial producer and director of amateur plays at the local club. Um, in Mombasa, the, the theatre club, which was sort of frequented by, by mainly by expats, and and she would put on things like um, <laughs> My Fair Lady and um, South Pacific and um, Oliver, Oliver Twist, Sound of Music, Oliver, should I say? Oliver. And you played, um, was it Fred Friedrich? I was Friedrich. <laughs> I, I did, I did have a bit of a laugh at that because I could totally was... picture you in your lederhose. No, the funny <laughs> thing is, is that it, it, in that is that we were all kitted out. I mean, the, the um, person in charge of the wardrobe took everything really seriously, so we had the full Von Trapp makeover in terms of what we were wearing. But the, looking at the photographs, there we are with our sort of um, tops made out of old curtains, which we all know from the film was the case, with our lederhosen. Uh, but what's so lovely is that, you know, you still in touch with many of those people who took part in in your mum's um, performances and they always speak so highly of her don't they um, I mean I know your dad was acknowledged in his career but your mum everyone remembers her so fondly she left a really lovely legacy but we also have to talk about and I mean I know your probably family will raise their eyes at this story but the whole David Bowie turning up and um, watching one of your mum's plays which was a bit random yes they'll, <laughs> they'll raise their eyes at it because they've heard it so many times but they were all there well certainly my brother was it's been well documented so I'm not making it up but yes my mum had her production of, of My Fair Lady going. David Bowie and his wife, Imam, Im yeah. um, were, were either renting or owned, I don't know, a, a house further down the coast in Kenya. Anyway, he, he just suddenly turned up and, and we think um, that he must have seen a flyer somewhere advertising the show or saw it in the, <laughs> why, why he would have picked up the local newspaper, I don't know. But anyway, he turned up, um, just by himself, he turned up. I was only about 12, I think, at the time. I hadn't a clue who he was. I mean, I, I hadn't, I, I had lived in Kendra all my life. I didn't, I didn't. But, but all of the older teenagers were, were, knew exactly who he was and were, were you know, this buzz went around. And he had to be signed in because it was a club. So he had to be signed in to the, to the visitors book. They were the rules. Um, they were the rules. And this buzz went around. I think he, he, he wrote some pleasant comments. Um, in it before we left on the way out and then his appearance at this club to watch it got into the paper and then it's the stuff of legends now yeah it's brilliant and up and a... apparently he loved it and thought it was excellent oh that's a great story and then i have to bring you to the fact that you were put on a plane to go to not only primary school which was in kenya but how many miles away uh, was your first 500 school? miles away. 500 yes. miles away yes Yes, it was it was a a boarding school in the Rift Valley. So those of you who know, so out of Africa and those yeah. lovely shots of, of of the lakes with the flamingos and and so on. And it was between Naivasha and Nakuru in a village called Gilgil. And there was a um, there was a school that that a lot of expats were sent to. But it, yes, it was a boarding school. So at the age of eight, um, I was packed off to boarding school. Um, thank God I had my brother there, my who was two years older than me, because he looked after. I was terribly homesick, and I and I know, and it, I know I was homesick, and I remember being homesick. But I still have amazingly fond memories of that school mm. again because I can look back and appreciate 
the freedom, the the quality of the teaching, the food was excellent, which means a lot. Even yeah. though I, when you were a kid, you yeah. do you remember? Even though I was like skipped that, in you? because I was probably running around all the time. Yeah. Um, but yes, so so at the beginning of term, no telephones in those days. So I was sent away at the beginning of the term. The terms were probably about the same length as school mm. terms here, so three terms per year. And I didn't see my mum and dad until half term, mm. when I then have to travel five hundred miles normally by plane. Yeah. Back down to home for for a week for for half term and then back was it Pembroke Pembroke House Pembroke mm, yeah Pembroke so ju- House. it was just for those who fellow expat Kenyans yeah well they've got, a, they've got a Facebook page nowadays okay so even though you were really homesick and you had Hugh there and it, it was still happy memories that you had but then it came to high school as we now call mm. it and all the expats pretty much sent their kids to England because of the educational standards weren't as good is that right is yes. that, is that mean, what sort of it I was mean, like the done thing yeah and the company paid for that didn't that's they, right as well? yeah they, they, like, it wasn't yeah. your mum and dad no, paying no, for it this no. was like part of the deal of them yes. being in kenya yeah. wasn't it my parents lived in a company house the company paid for school fees they paid yeah. for flights and so on and um, i think i can only guess my dad's basic salary was pretty pretty low because yeah. the company then just about paid for, for everything. You and I talk about the, the education system today about how it's a bit of a conveyor belt. In a way, it was a bit of a conveyor belt. Yeah. Probably you'll find that the secondary schools weren't as bad. They out just there. did they what probably, everybody probably, else but they was didn't, doing. They didn't, yeah. they, they didn't funnel you in, then into university and, and, and the primary schools didn't necessarily funnel you into the correct secondary schools. So mm. my parents made decisions just as, as everybody else did. So I was sent to secondary school, again, a, an independent boarding school um, in Kent, um, Kings, Kings Canterbury, when I was 13. That was even more of a shock for me because mm. um, I really was a, a very sort of Kenyan, a, a, a white Kenyan boy at, at that stage. And I was sent to boarding school Again, my brother was always there for me when I when 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 I felt down, missed home, and so on. He was there at school two years uh, two years above me. But whether I had an odd accent, so everybody asked me why I spoke the way I did. Um, I don't know what the accent sounded like, um, but I had an accent. Um, culturally, I knew absolutely nothing about England. So yeah, everybody was into their music and so on. I had to wear a uniform, yeah, a, a school that. uniform with with a white wing collar. Oh my god. I think it was the only school in England, one of these stiff wing collars. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and I was literally, literally moving from a, a kid who would wear flip-flops and shorts and go fishing every day into a very alien um, environment. Yeah, But not so fun, not such fun memories from that time, really. Maybe not, because, you know, as you go through sort of um, puberty into adulthood and uh, things become a little bit more serious and, and you're, you're probably more self-aware so of, of your surroundings as you're growing up that through, through that age. And, um, and there's more sort of competition with, with peer groups and suddenly you know, mm. there's a distinction between academic achievement and sporting achievement and whether you're popular or not and whether you're, you know, and so on. Yeah, all of those things uh, impact on you a lot more. And I was, I was um, at school. I think I was pretty um, average to good on most things. I didn't, I didn't really excel in any one thing. Mm. So um, I was sort of similar there to or me, thereabouts. Actually. Yeah, yeah, similar yeah. to me. Yeah, that's where we are, sort of similar, but obviously extremely different um, schooling. But at the same time, still those issues of whether you're popular, whether you're academic, whether you're sporty. It yeah. affects every kid, wherever school you go to. But at least I could go home to my mum at four o'clock, mm. you know, mm. and have me, me regular home yeah. comforts. And yet you were the boy who just loved, you yeah. longed for the school holidays, yeah. didn't you? And you never, I remember you saying, I mean, nobody wants to go back to school, but you hated leaving home, didn't you, to go back oh, to England? Absolutely. Even even as a teenager. You still remember even, even it. I know school, it still affects you now. I, I, was, I see I was, it. I was homesick. And, yeah. and, but probably for different reasons. I, I would just miss, I would miss being out in Kenya. I'd miss the weather. I'd miss the freedom. I'd miss fishing. And then obviously as a teenager, I was getting into windsurfing and surfing. And I, was, mm. I spend more time, but, you know, you get given more um sort of free um, leeway and free time to yeah. do what you like and, and I just miss that I miss that way of life I yeah, don't think it, it's it, ever left you has it, it, it was that, a that love time. of that that part of that it's never left you really has it my brother and sister are still still about there you've you've had um, the opportunity to be go out there twice although the first time was for a very um, <laughs> bit of a flying visit um, yeah. but no it, it, it'll always when, when people say to me where's home I always say to them well I can either give you the long answer or the short answer the short answer is, is, is Kenya the, mm. the, the long 
long answer is slightly more complicated. Yeah, so, I mean, those people who sort of know you from later on in life probably perhaps see you as a quite serious English, you know, <laughs> corporate man, exec in a suit type of thing. And it's just not you at all. It really isn't you at all, is it? No, and, and of the four of us, I think I was the one who was was deemed to be the least likely to end up uh, you know, settling in England and having a, a, a conventional um, job and so on. Yeah. Everybody was convinced that I was going to become a windsurfing instructor and, and <laughs> go off to the Alps during the know, winter season. You never know, you might still and, do that. Oh, you never That's know. Yeah, we just have nobody windsurfs anymore, so <laughs> kite surfing. You were in this sort of the, the educational conveyor belt mm. and you said you weren't particularly, which will surprise a lot of people because you ended up at Oxford when you said you weren't particularly brilliant at one type of thing, mm-hmm. you ended up at Oxford because a teacher saw something in you, invited you to apply to Oxford. It was an application process no, that, in those yeah, days. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in those days, um, it was ridiculous. Well, it was just the way it was. Oxford and Cambridge had their own entrance exam. So all you had to do was show that you had three A-levels and anybody could sit the entrance exam as long as you had three A-levels. And, of course, that's three E's at A-level because an E was a pass at A-level. So if you could, if you had three E's, then yeah. theoretically you could sit the entrance exam, of course, if you, you know, you'd be expected to be really good in the subject so that you're that, applying for. That really, really surprised me. I didn't know that that yeah. actually happened. I, I guess my advantage is I love geography as a subject and I was very good at geography. I ended up with a very average set of O-levels. Other than my A in geography, there were no A-stars in those days. I got an A and two Cs. Mm. Um, I got an A in geography. And you and ended up, still ended up at Oxford. Which well, yeah, so I yeah. sat the entrance exam and um, miraculously... <laughs> you did all yeah, right, because it was geography was your thing, too. Yeah, one of the reasons I had this passion for geography was at primary school, I had a teacher, Rory Moss, who was equally passionate about the subject. And he he, he lit some sort of spark in me and he gave me a huge amount of encouragement. That love of, of geography took me into secondary school and I had an equally inspiring passionate teacher in secondary school and it was that that despite my averageness on everything else he was one who said you could you know you you should apply to to Oxford don't listen to the others Mm. you should apply to Oxford I think you're good enough and I remember that distinctly and if it wasn't if it hadn't have been for him I wouldn't have applied Mm. I had a couple of other people who were definitely giving me other, uh, yeah, other messages, yes. Yeah. We've talked a lot about this on this podcast about teachers mm. and the power of them. Mm. They, they really do have the ability to send your life into different directions, yes. don't yes. they? Yeah. And it's, a quite, but it's also a question of whether you listen to them. Mm. So you had a choice of who you're going to mm. listen to there. And obviously you must have really, I think the key is whether you like the particular teacher who's given you the advice. Yeah. I, yes, it is. It, it is that no, like and trust and respect. Yeah. But it, it, in in anything, if you have an expert saying to you, "You're really good. Try, you know, go for it. You've got something in you. You're really good." Most people will respond. Then you've got to like and respect them as well. But you've also got to have a little bit of that self belief yourself. I think they've got to instill that in you. Yes. But you've got to almost. It's ultimately up to you mm. to make that decision. Mm. I'm sure. It, to a lot of people have come across a scenario where they have been told to do that mm. and they have an element of regret because they didn't mm. because they didn't really truly believe in themselves yeah. and i think perhaps this is where your upbringing did come mm. into into the fore that you were mm. the youngest of four kids mm. you had acquired that independence of going off to board in school and getting through that mm. so then you probably thought well what have i got to lose just to, following up on on the teacher and the inspirational um, encouragement that continued at oxford and it was one tutor there who who had a stage during the towards the end of my second year said if you put your mind to it now he could have been saying this to everybody i don't know but he said if you put your mind to it you could get a top grade mm. you could get a first and I, I just didn't. Did you fail your um, first year? I, I, I nearly failed my first year. Yes, nearly. I, I nearly got to it. most most um, students in their first year. If they do very very badly, they're asked to sit a special exam then in their first year. Mm. That if they then fail, they get thrown out. <laughs> and I was threatened with sitting that special exam because you just had too much fun. Or yes, yeah, yeah, I just didn't. I just didn't work in my first year. I didn't work. But then it's the second and third year where where you've, you've got to make some sort of effort. True. Well, at least yeah. it's good to know that you actually had a bit of a laugh at the time yeah, and that proper yeah, student yeah, life. Yeah. Well, I was fl- I was I was flying a lot of the time with. Okay, with, tell yeah, us about that yeah. flying. I remember well, when we first met, and you're like, "Oh, I can fly a plane." I was like, "Oh, okay." 
Yeah, right. And I didn't believe you, I well, think. <laughs> not, I used to fly up and down between school in Kenya. And in those days, you were allowed to go up into the cockpit. I mean, people will remember yeah. this. Yeah, in the old days, you were allowed to go up and the, the captain would shake your hand, young man, you know, shake your hands and tell you about the, all the knobs and the dials and things. And um, and the same flying from, from Kenya to the UK, you know, BOAC or British Airways. Mm. And you, I, I was a member of the Junior Jet Club which were little logbooks that British Airways issued kids and you got them to sign okay. to sign it, sign it off. Yeah. Anyway, I was fascinated with flying. <laughs> and I remember writing to the RAF and writing to British Airways as like a 12 or 13-year-old child saying, can I come and have a job? And that led me to the cadet, for- the, the, uh, cadet force at school, the RAF cadet force. And then when I went to university, there are several what are called university air squadrons around the country, which are training schools run by the RAF and they're principally to train those individuals who've signed up who are being sponsored through university pilots or navigators being sponsored through university who will then go on to join go to RAF Cranwell which is the main training base and so about two-thirds of the students at the Oxford University Air Squadron were were going on to join the RAF a third of us were what were called volunteer reserves so we we made no commitment to join the Air Force but the Air Force trained us to fly okay again yeah wow They, they actually paid me so they paid me to learn how so I used to get a little allowance I went solo up here so we had a, a camp up at RF Woodvale, which is um, near Southport. Southport yeah. And that was the first time I went solo. So I went solo after about 10 hours. But you didn't want to be in the RAF. And you, you left uni not really knowing what you were going to do. Genuinely didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. In the RAF in those days, um, to, to sign up for flight crew, um, the, the long service commission was 16 years that mm. you had to commit to. Short, what was short service commission was 10 years. And at the age of 21, 22, I, I didn't want to sign away. What my life for 10 years obviously a lot of people did Mm. but I knew I didn't want to do that when I left university I still didn't know what I wanted to do I went to London and I thought well the easiest thing to do is just buy more time to think about what I'm going to do I started working actually at M&S as a sales assistant in London well, it was it was my first job. Yeah. I'd, ne- I'd never. Sorry, it was, my I first, it was a great job. It was my first job yeah, in England. Customer in the facing UK. is yes. anything yeah. that's customer facing is great for confidence, mm, conversation, absolutely. and communication. Yes. Yeah. So it probably served you quite well, didn't yes. it? But I, I quickly worked out that I wasn't going to earn enough money to 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 fund another year off. And um, again, another pivotal moment in terms of conversations, um, there was a man I was, do- I was doing. So the MS job was part time and I was also working for what was called a corporate doctor. It's almost like a, um, an angel investor who invested in small companies and he was on the board of this and on the board of that. Anyway, he said, if you don't know what to do, get yourself a business qualification and go and join one of the big accountancy firms, train you up pass your exams, become a chartered accountant, mm. and then you can decide what to, do, what to do. And I said, well, I don't want to become an accountant. He said, well, you don't need to become an accountant. Do your three years, mm. get your qualification. And those days, some, some ridiculous percentage, like 70% of FTSE 100 you know, top C, chief executives were chartered accountants. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And I, and I applied mm. to, to KPMG and um, worked with KPMG for three years and qualified with them in living in London. And, and then, I guess, being with KPMG, being in London, being exposed to different businesses, I got to understand, actually, what working in industry actually meant. I hadn't a clue at university when people no. used to say, never, do you want to go and work in industry? I used to think said. of steel making and, yeah, and oil rigs and, and, and that sort of thing. I didn't think of the retail industry no. or the hospitality industry. Because they didn't or... teach you that, no, did they? No. They didn't teach yeah. you what options yeah. were actually yeah. out there. Anyway, you didn't stick with KPMG, I, I did didn't. you? I didn't stick no. with KPMG. And why is that? You because went I, too? Because I didn't want to be an accountant, that's why. Yes. And I ended up joining the Walt Disney Company as a financial analyst, as a business analyst. So it's sort of accountancy, though, isn't it? You want to know numbers? Yes. Yeah. It, it was the it was the business side of that cre- that creative powerhouse being Disney. They had business people that were that would work alongside the creative teams, getting that balance right, not wanting to constrain them and put them off. Yeah. Wanting to be supportive, but just keeping a BDI so on what on what movies did you work on? The first movie that was released when I joined was Aladdin. So I worked on Aladdin. We, we were producing the foreign language versions of all the big theatrical productions, the, the musicals. So we produced 21 different versions. Um, I worked on uh, Aladdin, The Lion King, Toy Story 1, Nightmare Before Christmas, um, Pocahontas. 
um, those were the, those were the, the animated movies. And and um, I, I was a business person, but I would work with the creative people yeah. in terms of fascinating. looking at those, um, you know, hiring local talent actors to sing the songs. Everything had to be translated into foreign languages, yes. singing the songs and so on. Fantastic um, that you're was. part of it. And hanging in our downstairs loo bathroom is your treasured possession, which I dug out when we moved. It was in a roll and I, I got it framed for you. Um, because yes, it's, it's yeah. signed, isn't it, by It's signed by the producer, Don Hahn, yeah. and it the says, it's, it's a big Lion King poster, and says, you. Dear Patrick, thanks for a spectacular job, um, yeah. Don Hahn. So, um, so it sounds like, it, I always say to you, why did you leave? It sounded like a dream job. It, it was a dream job. And in fact, I'm still in touch with some people who are still there, yeah. who, who still work, and, and, and people who've, who've since left. I've only come across one other person who, who's ever used this as a reason, but it is a general reason. I just thought it was too good to be true. I, I enjoyed that job so much, but I couldn't see where the future would would, would go mm. because it was just a lot of fun. There was a side of me that that wanted to progress and to develop my career and so on. And you, clearly, it's a it's a big organisation, but the job I was doing with the group of people I was working with was just so much fun. Um, you know, I was thinking about um, raising a family and so on. At that stage, I was married. Um, I guess that's all impinges on your decisions. So I had two years in Paris working for um, for what was Bonavista International, the film side, and then we all relocated from Paris back to London. So I spent a year in London, and then and then I decided I would move on and. I, but yeah, every everybody was very surprised, but um, but I did. That's when I decided. Well, I didn't decide, but I went back to what was, with hindsight, something which was more familiar to me, which was working for a company involved in shipping and trade and ports, mm. and it, it was a global, it was a global company, and that's P and O. So, and you loved P and O, didn't you? I did. I absolutely again, did. So again, you were being lucky to this point even though you came out of uni not knowing what you were doing you know it, it's great story for those who were, who were at that stage in life right now yeah to, to share the fact that you came out okay you had a face from office obviously helps but at the end of the day you still didn't know what you wanted to do mm. and you ended up in mm. quite a few jobs that the most important things that you loved them yeah there, there was a sort of there was a sort of familiarity with um with piano and, and i don't know you know being where I am now at my stage of my life, I look back and I and I seem to have much fonder and in a way more um, colourful and nostalgic um, sort of memories of, of early on in my career. And even though I can point to some things later on in my career which were massive accomplishments, if I can say that, there, there was a sort of fondness when I look back at earlier on. And, and you know, I joined um, P and O in the in the mid nineteen nineties. It was a sprawling conglomerate. It owns. Um, it owned Bovis Homes. It owned um, resorts in the Great Barrier Reef, it, uh, construction companies, cruise companies, ports companies, and so on. And, and, and I worked for them in their head office in in Pall Mall for three years, and absolutely loved it. And that's when I that's when I was introduced to their ports division that they were investing heavily in. That was again, it was in a way going back to my roots because then I was you know, all these ports and countries around the world where you know I had these distant memories that my father used to visit and saw pictures in the photograph albums and suddenly it was sort of brought to life in, mm. in, in my new job. And they sent you to the States. They did. At that stage, P&O Ports didn't have any businesses in the States. So there were a, a group of us and we we, we ended up as a, as a team, P&O ended up buying two companies, um, one, one that had um, operated ports and terminals down the east coast of mm. the US. And then secondly, another one that operated ports and terminals in um, the Gulf, um, around the Gulf, and they put them together. And um, I was I moved out to to the US with with my family and worked there. No, but, that's a big decision again, a bit like your mum and dad. Okay, probably the United States would have been more familiar to you, but still equally scary with a young family. Yes, and that, and a big decision to make right, again it, through conversation. I'm guessing it was it persuasion. was it was persuasion and conversation. I was asked three times whether I wanted to um, to take this job. I, um, it was it was a it was a great job, but he, he had to ask me three times because I had to think long and hard about it. <laughs> was and, it and like talk to Patrick? Him. Are you going, Patrick? Are you going, Patrick? You are going. Yes, yeah, <laughs> was yeah. it one of those? Almost one of those. Almost <laughs> one of those. We were there for two years. And one of the things that, that I remember about my time, I was out there during 9-11. Our office was was in New Jersey, just on the other side of, uh, of the river from, um, from Manhattan. It was a terrible day. 
Mm. It was a terrible day. You, you'll, you'll remember the pictures on the TV. It was a beautiful day. And uh, you, we, we could see um, from our office, we could see um, the, you know, the first tower go up and then go down, second tower. And you um, had colleagues, didn't you, in... Yes, yeah, so, so so the so the Port Authority of, of, of New York and New Jersey, who were a major um, uh, sort of stakeholder of ours, you know, we, we we leased properties and businesses from them and so on. They they were actually based in in one of the towers. I, I went I, I went to the, the the twin towers had a restaurant at the top. I went to the restaurant two or three times um, for, for work, and had a good friend who lived who worked in one of the adjoining buildings to the twin towers, but. We could see we could see them burning and then and then disappearing um, um, mm. on the morning. Yeah, everybody in the office was highly traumatized, mm-hmm. and by lunchtime, everybody had been sent home because there was just no point. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, also, as well as being traumatized, you know, sent home because they they either knew or um, knew people who knew yeah. um, because it it housed a lot. Of, well, as you know, is I think three thousand six hundred mm-hmm. people um, lost their lives. I was left in the office. There was one other expat, and we were left there to to sort of, sort of man the telephones and and, yeah. and and make sure the things were were um, sort of kept orderly. But it it, it had a massive impact. And then I don't know if you remember, several a, a, a few months later, there was the the um, the attacks with the with the chemical agent. I don't know if you remember that, but there were there were things no, being posted through the through letterboxes oh, okay, in, yeah. in, in in the US. And that was equally traumatic. Mm. Um, people became paranoid about opening envelopes and mm. so on. So it was, it was a, really, a really tough time. It was a tough time. But for you, obviously, as as an expat, you were almost chosen to to, to keep things going. But it wouldn't didn't mean it didn't affect you any less. I'm guessing. No. Or did you have that sense of responsibility? No. I, well, you do get that sense of responsibility, but you can feel. Um, almost one step you 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 do have that barrier of culture and of yeah. nationality and and it was it not was not it was an awful thing no as, as um, americans no. naturally yeah but what one of the parents of in, in jemima's school lost his life so wow. so her school was um, profoundly mm. affected by it and um yeah and you met mayor juliana oh yes um, rudy juliani P&O Ports, um, North America, as the business was called, we operated the cruise terminal on the Hudson River in Manhattan. And the cruise terminal was on three levels. It had a, it had car parking on the top. It had um, sort of conferencing and exhibition center on another level and then, and then the cruise terminal on the other level. And they commandeered FEMA, which was the Federal Emergency Management Authority, I think it's called, FEMA that, that was sprung into action after after 9-11, commandeered the entirety of the of the of the cruise terminal from P and O ports. It, it, it was it was taken because it was a, a time of national need. No, the, the the thing I remember about that, because I was the CFO, I had to sign all the agreement um, to give them total control. So Rudy Giuliani was Giuliani the mayor was the, was the mayor, mayor of New York. So if FEMA would have approached him to say, where can we set up our base? Okay. The the whole area to around run the investigation. 20, yes, and okay. to run all the um all the management of, of of New York because they, if you think about it, the whole sections of the city were cordoned off. Okay, and they needed to do the um uh, to do the investigation or follow up. You can imagine so the documentation. Yes. Yeah. What a complex yeah. case of yeah. oh my god. Yeah. So they needed a huge facility then. I'm guessing. An absolutely massive facility, and of course they had um hundreds of people drafted in and bits of equipment and so on. And um, I, the, the, it, came at, it came at a time where, yeah, that was a, that was a, a part of our business. So we needed to be compensated mm. um, for that. And that was a tricky negotiation mm. because we, we, were, we were trying to have a commercial discussion in terms of agreeing compensation. We were a British-owned yeah. comp- I mean, uh, There was business. a lot of emotion attached yes. to us as well. And, and, and it was a key asset. That You'd have lost a with. lot of money. If we would have lost a lot of money. Yeah. And they, want, they wanted to, they, I think they would have, preferred us to give it to them for a dollar for six months mm. um so that that was that was difficult and different and awkward but we, we came to an agreement and and, and again done. you know i'm guessing i'd love to be a being a fly on the wall while you were negotiating that patrick because you very you'd have been very aware of the sensitivity of the situation mm. and i'm sure you've you had massive respect mm. for the authorities there mm. and they likewise will have had to learn to know, like, and trust you to get that deal over the line. And that's the one thing 
that I've witnessed since I've been married to you, mm. having listened in on conversations and hear how you deal with people. That's the one thing I love about you is that, you know, you, you're very, very sensitive to where the other person is coming from. Yet, you know, you take no mess in when it comes mm. to the realities mm. of the commercial, of commercial world mm. and your duty to mm. your employer. It, it works. It does. You know, when, when, you're, when you're negotiating with anybody, you've got to try to place yourself in their position and yes. you try to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And that can be quite um, straightforward and it can be quite complicated. In that example we were just talking about in terms of 9-11 and, and um, the, the cruise terminal, it was particularly difficult because of the sensitivities of it. Mm. And, and yes, you try to be reasonable and you try to go about it in a in a constructive um, in a constructive way. But of course, you sometimes have people on the other side of the table who know of the sensitivities and they might take advantage mm. of it and so on. Anything that requires negotiation can't be um, you can't get through by slamming your fist on the table and raising your mm. voice and, and, and so on that's no way to do it no um, and and I think you being you um just just moving forward then to your later years of your career you being you I think came the higher you got up the, the ladder I think that's when your sort of your values were tested even more as you came closer to the top of companies I guess you, you're absolutely right as you progress through life um you you get to you get a, a really good sense of um, what's acceptable to you in terms of behaviour. You get a, a good handle on your own levels of integrity, of honesty, your values, the way you like treating people. And it becomes more of a challenge because you get, you know, you know, those things become, you almost become set in your ways. Mm. In terms of, you become less tolerant of individuals who um, are not, not really who aren't like you. But, but sometimes who don't hold those same mm. um, values that you have or, or approach them in a different way. And the more of life experiences that mount up, the more that comes into sort of stark, stark contrast. Mm. And, yes, so as my career has, has progressed and I've moved further up the corporate ladder, you, be, you become more, in a way, more opinionated and you have more opinions as to what's important to you and um, and the behaviour of, of others, let's say, mm. yes. So bringing that full circle down to, you know, you're coming to Liverpool then. How did you end up in Liverpool? I'd been working for another ports company in, in, in the UK, and I literally, I, I got, I was headhunted. I, I, I received a call. I was living down in Southampton, and I received a call in, in 2013. Peel Ports, who is, is the company I ended up working for, Peel Ports owns the Port of Liverpool. They also own the Manchester Ship Canal, and they own ports ar around the country. And Peel Ports had made a decision to invest in a project which was known as Liverpool 2, which was building a brand new port facility, a container terminal facility, to try to attract the biggest ships in the world, the biggest cargo ships in the world, to come and use Liverpool. It was a, a very, very bold step mm. because most of the big ports are in the south of the country. Peel Ports wanted to break that mould, but they needed somebody on the commercial side to actually, once the thing had been built, so it was always a massive civil engineering project for mm. quite a number of years, but they needed to get those customers, they needed to get those ships in mm. to start using it and to break that mould where we in Liverpool or in the north of England have been reliant on those southern ports. I had this call in, in, in phone call in 2013 and they said, we hear that you might be available to, to come up. This is the job. They described it. And you know, for somebody who had spent many, many years um, saying how great all the southern ports were, um, <laughs> and um, because there wasn't a northern alternative, this was this yeah, was a really this was a really exciting challenge. Yeah, and me. you loved the vision, didn't you? We all did. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. anyone who was in the business community, yeah. you know, we could see the cranes yeah. going up. We just got more and more yeah. exciting. But then the pressure I yeah. know was yeah. then on to deliver. It, it was, and you know, when, when I started talking to to um, shipping lines, it came back to my geography. Yeah, I would I would look at I'd sit with a map of of the UK, <laughs> and I would say, look, if all of the population lives up here, and and this proportion of industry and this proportion of consumption and retailers are north of north of Birmingham, 
why do we have ships that come into the south of, of England, discharge all their cargo, which is put on lorries that have to drive all the way up to the north of England? And they can um, just park, one up, by one. park up in Liverpool. One by one. So instead, <laughs> so it, conceptually, it was yeah. at that level, it was a very simple argument, argument yeah. to make. Yeah, we talked about saving um, costs, carbon, and congestion mm. um, as being you know the, the three C words. You know what why what was behind this? But so it was really turning the clock back to yeah. what you know why why did Liverpool become a massive port? It's because the areas of, of consumption and production mm. um, were, were located. So you in the, wanted in the to get, get it back to its glory days. And so twenty fourteen, I, I moved up I, here I, in an attempt to do that. Yeah, and, and I think you achieved it. Well, I know you achieved it, and I know you're very modest. But come on. Tell us how you what you, I heard again some of the the final negotiations again. But your your colleagues appealed, probably thinking, "How the hell did you know?" But we were we were at home working from home in those sort of that's right. Months. It, it, uh, uh, tw- uh, 29, second half of twenty nineteen. That's right. So um, you, you you know mm-hmm. the, the negotiations were pretty much twenty four seven. So we were living with this. Mm. Yeah, you'd been you know, hammering this this role and, and to secure this vision. But ultimately it came to the need to bring in this major shipping line and MSC was that shipping line and you wanted to get them and seal the deal as, as a joint venture. And you led that negotiation, didn't you? That's right. MSC Mediterranean Shipping Company had, had always been very supportive. Of, they're the second largest shipping company um, in the world. They were always behind the idea of Peel Ports building Liverpool too. We got to a stage where um, we wanted to bring them in as a partner as a, and, and to form a joint venture. So we built Liverpool too, and we said, well, that they we could actually give them some dedicated sort of capacity for their ships to come in to use this facility. It'll work for them. That'll work for us because we'll have some guaranteed um, mm. income. And um, the shareholders of Peel Ports decided that that in terms of a long term deal. They supported that strategy, mm. so so we started negotiating with 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 MSC. Um, they're headquartered in Geneva. Those discussions went on for quite a while. And um, yes, you're right. There were we were doing stuff from home. That's because we were, if you remember, we were getting married uh, in and August re- 2019 and renovating our house and renovating the house. <laughs> and we had that very short time. honeymoon after we got married. And I'm afraid to say I was, I was receiving phone calls um, sitting on the beach um, in the south of France, yeah. trying to finalise that deal. But, and you but, did, and I did, and and that was you know, from my perspective that was job done. Yeah, job done, but it's left its legacy of securing oh. thousands of jobs, Patrick. You know, I was really, really proud of you, and I don't think you got the credit you deserved, but I know that's not why you did it. <laughs> As they say, I was paid to do a job and I did the job. Yeah. So, no, it will, uh, that container terminal will be there for forever now. Yeah. And, you know, we can all see it. We can all see those lovely big red cranes. Well, I think they're lovely big red cranes. Yeah. Endlessly still point them out to me. I know I, go, I, know I can see them. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, it, it's, it's great. You know, particularly, yeah, it, all the stuff that's been in the news that, that, Recently, about you know, lorry drivers, the, the the lack of lorry drivers, and and made worse, of course, mm. by Brexit. But you know, we've already said, well, we don't need lorry drivers driving long distances up from the south of England. You know, use local ones here, get them to do shorter journeys. That's far more sort of social hours mm. and, and and so on. And and something you know, one one of the one of the impacts of of Liverpool too will hopefully help the livelihoods and and and, and work life balance of, of long distance lorry drivers as well as helping big retailers like sort of home bargains and bnm on our doorstep um who built their their trade from from imported goods and selling them through their retail outlets and and um you know they will massively benefit as well mm. so all good yeah, I'm really proud of you. I'm really proud of you. Um, so obviously you left Peel Ports again. You just you wanted a fresh challenge. Yeah, like job I say, done. from my perspective, it was it, it was job done. I, I've always tried to have in mind what the next step is. If you're work if you're working for a company, even even if you're the CEO, even if you wherever you are in that organisation, you know, as we always mm. know, it's it's sort of it's helpful and healthy to know what your next step might be. Peel Ports, I. I I couldn't see my next step um, very, very clearly. Mm. Um, that that wasn't sort of um, in my mind wasn't laid out, and in my mind I'd also done what I'd been hired to do, and it was time to move on. But the strange thing is that I ended up then working for 
Stanlow Terminals, which is um, based on the other side of the water at, at, at Stanlow, part of part of the SR Group, who own and operate the oil refinery. I took that job because even though I'd been working in large corporates all my career, KPMG, Walt Disney Company, P&O, ABP, Ports, Stanlow Terminals felt, felt like a startup. It felt like a small startup business. And in fact, it had been recently formed. So I took that job because it was an exciting opportunity, terribly timed because I, I started that job in April, April 2020. Literally two weeks um, after lockdown. That's right. Yeah. As the chief executive, not being able to go into the office, yeah. um, not being able to meet my team, but um, it was a, a new a new sector. It was as chief executive um, asked to build a customer base, asked to um, build a team, and to and to take that business forward. I guess just to clarify again, just it's distinct from the refinery. It's still owned by SR, but it was a, a that's separate right. company. That's right. SR decided to to split the business out, so they they took all of what they call the infrastructure assets away from the refinery and, mm. and put them into this new company. So the tanks, the pipelines, the railway lines, mm. the ports of Tranmere, and the, the jetties on the Manchester Ship Canal and put all of those into a separate company called Stanley Terminals. The oil refinery had a chief executive, and Stanley Terminals had a chief executive. And again, you know, it was a tough time, but you delivered. And again, you ever think, does she not do anything, this woman? Do I just listen in on your conversations? But Because I am in business, and I am intrigued. And, you know, obviously through lockdown, we were together every day, um, like most people, well, I say most, those who were staying at home, you couldn't help but listen and you would yeah. come out and we would support each other really right. through lockdown. And, yeah. you know, with, it was with, interesting, wasn't it? Because I would, running, have a, that's right. I would have a take on things. <laughs> you would, you would. And, and you know, you, you were... You ran your own business and you would be around. And, and when we moved into our new house, could shut myself away in an office. But as you remember, I would frequently come out frustrated <laughs> and, and sharing something with you and asking you what you thought. And um, invariably, and I, you know, I'm not just saying this, but invariably you would have a very clear uh, view as to um, as to what to do. So that was always very, very helpful. Thank you. But it was only because, you know, I probably wasn't as attached to it and I was listening in objectively, mm. which is often an, an easier place to be, isn't it? Just taking you back to 2016. Yeah, I rocked up and your life turned on its head again. <laughs> you didn't get Paris, you, USA. Um, you got Liverpool. I got Liverpool and, yeah. and, and, and Michelle. You did. Um, Liverpool, so, Michelle and all that comes with it. And all that comes with it. Yeah, the, 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 the craziness and the chaos. So that was not so no it's not not so much craziness and chaos anymore but you know but it was then wasn't it it was and and wow so much has happened in that in that time since mm. um I had, I had turned 50 you and I talk about this so um we, we talk about it a lot that yeah you know, there's no whatever age you are there's no reason why something can't reignite you know, your your passions and things give you a fresh impetus. You gave me that challenge to challenge myself. Certainly, in those years since, we've spent a lot of we we, we spend a lot of time talking about. We do. Uh, well, we well, I could I could say we spend a lot of time talking. Full stop. No, but I'm going to go on. No, we spend we spend a lot of time talking about what's next in our lives. And, mm, and, we do, and, yeah. and and I like to think that that keeps us on our toes and it's a very healthy conversation to have. I wouldn't like to slow down. I'll never say to people that I've retired. No, um, I hate that we, word. Yeah, we, we agree with that. Yeah, that no, word yeah, retired. Yeah, no. Even when you do leave a company, you're not really retired. Are you? You've got you've got, got to constantly think, yeah. think of what's next. Yeah, what's next. And that's what we do. But we also spend our days debating and challenging each other and mm. learning from each other, um, supporting, laughing and loving each other. But, you know, it's not without its... Um, it's roller coaster ride, and you know we we've we've built a, a new home together. Mm-hmm. Literally, we were very very blessed to get that done and get married in 2019. You know, it was a crazy crazy year. You, you know, you, you were coming to the end of your time with Peelport. I was coming to the end of my time um, at Reach PLC, and life was just on this crazy ride. And then we had our honeymoon in February. And came home to lockdown. And the world changed. And the world changed, mm. didn't it? Mm. You know, we, we do spend a lot of time together. And sometimes, 
you know, I love it, but sometimes we think, oh, you know, is it, you know, it's getting that balance, isn't it? Um, so that's why we saw, well, you, we built the marriage saver, which is where we're sitting your, your now. Fa- your fancy, your fancy I, garden shed. I, la- I allowed you in today. Yes, I know, I yes I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm not on the comfy chair, am I? I'm, no, I got the comfy chair. Yes. That was, that was inevitable. Mm. No, I know that was no negotiation mm. on that one. Um, but no, we do spend our time talking to each other and I'm not easy to live with, but the one thing, and, and Hannah will agree with you on that. And um, but the one thing that that happened during lockdown is, you know, definitely you and Hannah bonded because it was the three of us, mm. and that was nice because you know Hannah had me to herself for mm. many many years, and it wasn't easy for her, was it? But um, I just wanted and, and, to. And and um, Hugo and Jemima managed yeah. to to come up. They're both based down in London, and we saw we were able to see more of them. Yeah. Um, than we've previously seen seen so. Yeah, all yeah, all sorts of reasons why it's it's been a, a very very different eighteen months mm. to a normal life, and I, I don't think it's returned to normal, has it? No, but I think for us as a family, we feel we, we've been very blessed and very mm. lucky mm. compared to mm. others. I think it's actually been good for us um, in terms of that opening up and communicating and connecting with each other a lot mm. more, and and hence why one of the reasons why Talk On to Walk On the podcast was born. Mm. You know, that's where you are now, and you've left Stanlow. You're not working. Working. you're not retired mm. you know if we could just explain that you're not just sitting at home and um, making well, cups of tea and, and twiddling about in your garden <laughs> no I mean we, we you know we again it's part of the conversations we've had isn't it we we want to we want to do more we want to do more and we want to give back um, yeah. we want to keep ourselves busy we want to keep our minds engaged and we want to do more in in Liverpool for Liverpool mm. and the podcast and the talk on to walk on brand is in a way a sort of vehicle to do that and then we're looking at other small businesses to help as well we're helping um hugo with his his aardvark business and we've invested in that we've got a few others and that's what we want to do going forwards we haven't really talked about clubhouse which we won't you, you no, can talk can, about clubhouse no, I think but, we can do no, but you know we, 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 we run um your weekly um, walk what's called walk on wednesday every wednesday at 3 p.m on the audio app clubhouse and we do that jointly i think i still think of the podcast as as being you mm. it's, it's um, talk on to walk on podcast with michelle walters although it and may I, change after this i'm going to get people's opinions i think we're going to be bringing you in a bit more no, i reckon no. depends on the guest i think at the, at the moment i'm the i'm the unqualified useless sound engineer and producer <laughs> who's constantly screwing up in the background and um so that's my role in the that's pod- not true that's my role in the podcast that's not no but what i was going on to say is that what i found working with you I say working it's been a pleasure it's not really work on walk on wednesday on on clubhouse is that it's developed a sort of a way a way for us to interact with each other mm-hmm. um in a semi-formal setting where we've got guests we're talking to um, albeit through an audio app we've got used to that and that's yeah. that's for, for for the two of us it's but now even sitting here and having this chat doing this podcast because we've sort of We're quite used, used to, to sitting yeah. next to each other aren't yeah. we and, and engaging with others mm. not and, and directly with ourselves yeah. because sometimes we will look at each other when we're asked a challenging question mm. and see who's going to take mm. it and, and and we're all the one thing I mean that this is what happens with probably second marriages and, and people meeting later in life is for me it will never get stale mm. because I'm always learning from you, Patrick. Mm, you know, mm. we, our lives are so, so mm. beforehand, we're so, so different, but our values are very, very similar. And I think that's the most, the key in life is to not judge people, mm. you know, not judge people from mm. where they're from, mm. not judge people from what they've, on what they've got, not judge people on, you know, their job title or whatever. Get to know them mm. because you actually never truly mm. know. Mm. You know, you were you were fishing in Kenya, and I'm sitting on a wall in Shubrook asking the guy to get me a bottle of cider. Yeah. You know, we, our lives were completely different. Yeah, they were. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Growing up, but at the same time, we had good family mm. behind us, didn't mm. we? Yeah. You know, we yeah. had good, strong mums yeah. in particular. Yes, I mean, you had the benefit. Your dad was around. I mean, my dad had his issues, but he was always mm. a worker. Mm. Um, even though there was there was a lot of issues there, and and I think that's what I would say mm. to anyone in terms of. You know, some people do laugh and look at us and go, how the hell did that happen? Mm. And I often still ask that myself, but that would be my lesson to to anybody out there is is never judge, take a chance 
and talk and get to know each other because that's what we definitely did mm. on the phone many a night Absolutely. for hours and hours on end. Yeah. And that's how we got to know each other was through, mm. really was through long conversations, mm. wasn't it? Mm. Um, but before we end, I have to ask everybody this question. Um, your advice to young Patrick at 18, um, what would you say? What would I say to my younger self? I would, I would say the choices that you make in your life are choices that, that make you happy mm. and keep you fulfilled. Now, it's easy to say that, so I'll add a caveat to that, is that mm. if that's difficult and you can't always make choices that keep you happy and or fulfilled, do that in a conscious way. So if you have to consciously make a decision and, and do it as part of a bigger plan. Yeah. So, so if you've got to make a decision that isn't exactly up your street or what you're after, but that you can see your way down that road and potentially a way out, or, or you can consciously say, okay, well, I'm going to stick at that for two years, or I'm going to stick at that for a year. And if it doesn't work out, or if it goes the wrong way, I can then I can then jump ship. If you do that consciously, then, then that's way. But to the extent that you can make all your decisions and keep yourself happy and fulfilled at the same time. Yeah, um, think, and, and get that clarity. You know, that, that's what I would say to my eighteen-year-old um, because it's um, not easy though. It isn't when you're eighteen. You don't know what you want, do no. you? And you didn't know. No. You didn't know at twenty-one, twenty-two. And, and, and the concept of what makes you happy um, is quite difficult to articulate as an eighteen-year-old. Mm. Um, but I think it's. I think to simplify it slightly is probably you know close your eyes and picture how you want your life to be. You, okay, you might not decide exactly how you're going to get there, but mm. just almost picture mm. and try and stick to that mm. image of, of your future self, mm. of where you want and how you're going yeah. to get there and just take small steps towards yeah. it. And like you say, be, be, be endlessly aware mm. of it. Keep coming back to that image of where mm. you want to go and you know and, and make those decisions and don't be afraid to leap yeah. and jump ship like you've jumped upon the pun literally jump ship many yeah. many times yeah. Yeah. um you've been lucratively rewarded in terms of mm. you know how you've been paid and, and whatever but at the end of the day it was your values and not the money that led Correct. you to the, the decisions Correct. that you yeah. made yeah and and your happiness and that's what that's why fulfillment and and happiness is so important and yeah. of course, the opposite of that. Because you can have all the money in the world and be yeah. absolutely miserable. Yeah. As, as an 18-year-old, I, I think, um, I've got no um, stats to back this up, but um, I, I think that a lot of teenagers and young adults might make their life choices on what will earn them lots of money yeah. or what keeps their parents happy. If there's yeah. an expectation in the family that you're going to do a particular yeah. career, that you do that, there's a lot of pressure there. And the more than that young people can be fed with information to allow them to try to make those choices about sort of long-term happiness and fulfillment and contentment. And it sounds a bit woo-woo and so on. But again, crazy stats about how many people are in jobs and doing things that they're not right. happy with and not fulfilled. And to talk to somebody mm. when you're not feeling mm. fulfilled. Because you can, you can have it's not easy to do that self-talk, is it? Mm. Mm. And and stick to, you know, taking that leap. And you need somebody like the guy you met mm. who told you to go and be the accountant yeah. and the teacher who said, give this a go. That's really right. listen to people around yeah. you are giving you mm. some guidance. And if you haven't got anyone, seek them out. Mm. And tell them how you feel it. And be brave. And because be brave, yeah. in, the, in this day and age, it is um, accepted far more and easily doable to, to jump, you know, whether at university and you realise that the course you've chosen is the wrong one. Or even university. You, yeah, you, you can so, change course. Yeah. If you start a job, um, you know, people looking at, at, at CVs nowadays don't look and think, oh, well, that, that person's a job hopper. If they're young, I think that the more job hopping uh, – the more job hopping the you more do, experience and variety, right. and you're draw, yeah. that's right. You get to decide what you and like. And it's good to have multi passions. Mm. Again, you know, for me, I always felt like okay, I was a lawyer for, for for ten years, but after I left, I did a variety of things, and I used to think, oh, I'm not a master of one thing, and now I know that that's a good thing. Absolutely. I know I can take all my various experiences yeah. and various passions mm. that I've got. And, and, and really mm. add value in so many different mm. places and in so many different mm. ways. Mm. And I, I'm really proud of my mm. my career now. Whereas for a while I was a bit, oh, mm. almost a bit shy to, to mm. say what I'd done and what I'd achieved because yeah. I'd left the law. But it reminds me, um, when my when my kids were at primary school, um, there was an end, end of term or end of year and the headmaster was, was, was talking to all the kids and the parents and that sort of thing. And he said something which I think was well-meaning but would – potentially poorly interpreted. He said to all the kids, he said, 
one bit of advice is make sure in life that you find one thing that you get really, really good at. Mm. Now, on the face of that, sounds quite clever and quite, yeah. quite, quite I sensible. Can, I can understand um, what he means by that. That's but right. So, so what, what he actually meant, speaking to this group of eight, nine, ten, eleven-year-olds, mm. wasn't necessarily become a specialist in some electrical engineer, a very, very specific area of, of, of electrical engineering, for example. He was he, he was talking as much as hobbies. He was to, he was saying just mm. find find an interest, and he was trying to channel people down yeah. um, the the right way. But that does increase confidence. I mean, again, it does. I always say on this podcast, this could be another podcast. Mm. So maybe it's it's a definitely a clubhouse mm. room topic mm. because it definitely if you focus on one thing and you become good at it, you definitely become more confident. Yes. However, it can make you a little bit one dimensional. You can find like minded people, and you. Who, <laughs> yeah. who could... I have to say, I've met a few lawyers who only just know that they they have only known the law. Yes. And there you go. You kind of run out of conversation yes. after a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think there's definitely a bit of both in there yeah. to, to yeah. say, yeah, maybe get good at something mm. and um, help that get your confidence, but use that as a platform yes. to leap into other areas yeah. and know you can become good at other things. Yeah. Don't just stick at that one. The world thing. needs specialists, but it's perfectly good <laughs> and excellent to be a generalist. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we like that. We yeah. like that. Ah, that's a nice way to end, actually. And then, the, well, the quote that I found when I came to talking about the two of us was like, it said, is Vex King, and he says something along the lines. Bring this on me. No, yeah. no, no. I haven't written it in, in perfect. You Go know what, Mike? I'm always People, surmising. You read, you read it out. And it says, there's no perfection in relationships. It's no such thing. And because I know sometimes we have our little wobbles. <laughs> As mm. most people mm. do, um, but it says about it's about two people making steady progress with each other while exercising. And you're going to love patience and understanding. Patience and understanding. <laughs> but so, are you working on your patience? I'm working about, on it. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I am. Yes, I am too. Yeah, I try to be patient. I try to be patient. But for now, I'm going to say thank you. I'm hoping that from the conversation today that they will appreciate why you were my lucky find. And we didn't actually talk about how we met, did we? We did another apply, podcast. Another podcast. In fact, after this, I shall I shall look at uh, the copious notes that I've made copious to prepare notes. for this to prepare for this podcast, and I'll discover all the things I haven't said. I know, and then, but, but it is going on a bit now, yes, so we're going to bring it to a okay, conclusion. Thank you. <laughs> That's me putting my foot down. Thank you for your very kind, lovely words and uh, totally reciprocated. Never at the beginning of 2021 did I think I'd have completed a podcast season of 12 episodes heading towards 2,000 downloads across 26 countries. But neither did I ever anticipate I'd be recording a podcast conversation with my husband, Patrick. If you like what you hear and want more of our joint insights, then there's plenty more to come. But just let us know if that's what you want. And also, in the short term, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, please do share it with just one other person as it would massively help to push me across that 2,000 downloads line. It would be a great way to end this first season of Talk On To Walk On and it would honestly be a lovely Christmas gift. I have lots of fantastic guests lined up for 2022, so please do remember to come back and join us in the new year as we continue to celebrate the power of conversation. Let's talk on to walk on and let's see where it leads.